0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Cyber Persistence, a new paradigm for cyberspace strategy and policy. Please welcome Dustin Carmack, the Heritage Foundation's Research Fellow in Cybersecurity, Intel, and Emerging Technologies.
1: Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you for joining us today here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, It's my pleasure to welcome everybody to uh, today's event Cyber Persistence, a new paradigm for cyberspace strategy and policy. Uh, it's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Emily Goldman and Michael Fisher Keller. Uh, Emily is a strategist uh, at U.S. Cyber Command and a renowned thought leader on cyber policy. Her previous roles include serving as cyber advisor to the Director of Policy Planning at the Department of State, directing the U.S. Cyber Command National Security Agency Combined Action Group, reporting to a four-star commander, and leading a team that wrote the 2018 U.S. Cyber Command Vision, Achieve and Maintain Cyberspace Superiority. She publishes and lectures widely on strategy, cybersecurity, arms control, military history and innovation and organizational change. Emily is speaking here today in her own capacity and does does not reflect the views of the U.S. government. Michael is a research staff member in the Information Technology and Systems Division at the Institute for Defense Analysis where he spent over 20 years supporting the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and combatant and and, uh, multinational force commanders. They, along with their co-author, Richard Harknett, uh, published an excellent book earlier this year titled, Cyber Persistence Theory, Redefining National Security in Cyberspace. There's a lot of noise and misconception out there uh, right now on cyber, what government operations look like in this space going forward, their effectiveness in both an active war environment and all the time in between. These scholars are at the forefront of breaking the conventional wisdom and thoughts on where we are in cyber policy and where we need to go. And we welcome them here to the Heritage Foundation for this timely discussion uh, amid Cybersecurity Awareness Month, where I believe there's something, you know, some kind of event related to cyber about every hour uh, for the rest of this month. Uh, and an ongoing review currently of the U.S. national cyber strategy that we expect shortly. Let's hop right into our discussion. And for those joining online, uh, please submit your questions into the queue. We'll do our best to get to them along with our in-person uh, audience questions. <laughs> well, welcome. Uh, I wanted to start off uh, a discussion about your book. Uh, you highlight that cyberspace uh, should be seen as an environment of uh, exploitation rather than coercion. Uh, can you explain to our audience the ideas behind cyber persistence theory, uh, with some context of some of the past thoughts on the future of uh, cyber warfare and security? Okay,
2: I'll start, Michael. I, I will. Thank
3: you, um, Dustin. Thank you for for having us here, and and uh, I expressed on on Richard's behalf. I'm, I'm sure he's he's uh, sad that he couldn't make it. Uh, it's it's an excellent opening question because um, you know you you use the term environment uh, and. In chapter two of our book, um, which is really the, the chapter that focuses on the theory, and then the rest builds out the consequences of the theory, we introduce this concept of a strategic environment. And that's, that's a, a big new, new novel contribution of the book. And strategic environments are uh, characterized uh, by a dominant technology uh, and that, that is, uh, poses a central challenge to security, the conditions that uh, derive from that technology, and then the uh, security logic or conceptualization of security that derives from those conditions. So three things actually just characterize what uh, an environment is. And there are three of them that we talk about in the book. One is nuclear, one is conventional, and one is cyber. And all of you, I think, are quite familiar with nuclear and conventional. Right? I'm not gonna talk about all three, but I'm gonna talk about nuclear just so when I talk about cyber, you understand the difference, right? Um, so if, if we take that those characteristics of a strategic environment and we apply it to to the nuclear strategic environment, obviously the dominant technology is nuclear weapons, right? And the the uh, the condition that flows I'm sorry the core feature of nuclear weapons is they are incontestable. Right? They have incontestable costs. You cannot defend against nuclear weapons under no circumstance. Right? So that is the core feature of the nuclear technology. The condition that that core feature places states in is a condition of offense dominance. Right? We hear this term, offense dominance, thrown around a lot in cyberspace. It doesn't belong there. Right? Because sometimes you can win. Sometimes you can defend in cyberspace. Right? In fact, a lot of the times, as we're seeing in Ukraine, you can defend in cyberspace. So in an offense-dominant environment, you cannot defend. So that's why it really belongs with nuclear weapons. And the concept of security that flows from that is that your security actually rests in the mind of your opponent. And again, when I said that, I'm sure everybody went, oh, that's deterrence. <laughs> right?" And it is. right. And that's where deterrence came from. It's this notion of the nuclear weapons, incontestable cost, offense dominance, and then security rests in the mind of the adversary. So now I'm going to switch to this other environment, the cyber strategic environment. It's quite different, right? The technology, it's no single thing like a nuclear weapon. It's actually a composite of technologies. If you look in Joint Pub 312, it's the, conne- it's the interconnectedness of all these devices, servers, so on and so forth. So it's composite of technologies. The core features, there isn't just one, there are core features. It's uh, mutable, it's constantly changing. Uh, it's interconnected, which is a big one. And it is what we call macro-resilient and micro-vulnerable, right? It's, it was intended, designed to be macro-resilient, originally the internet, uh, the internet and the ARPANET. And it's micro-vulnerable. Everybody knows that cyberspace is an abundance uh, of vulnerabilities. Right? That's part of the, the big problem here. So those are the core features. The condition that results from those core features, we, we describe as constant contact. Right? Everybody is in constant contact with everybody else. Right? Because everybody's in this space, we're interconnected. Because there's vulnerabilities everywhere, so I can touch all of your instruments of national power and all your sources of your instruments of national power, and you can do the same to me. Right? That's a condition of constant contact. And The conceptualization of security in this particular environment is very different than it is in the nuclear environment. It is that you have to persist in seizing the initiative to set the security conditions in your favor by exploiting the vulnerabilities of your adversaries or anticipating that yours are going to be exploited by your adversaries. Okay? So when I talked about nuclear, I talked about coercion. Right, You're av- it, When you have second strike capability, second strike, mutually assured destruction, is a strategy of coercion. So that's appropriate for that space. When I talked about cyber, I talked about exploitation. Right? Because the nature of the environment is that it is an exploitative environment. I didn't talk about coercion. You don't see hardly any coercion between states in and through the cyber strategic environment, because exploitation is the mechanism for achieving gains in that environment.
2: Let me let me just um, you know kind of build a little bit on what Michael said. And first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for organizing this. Um, I think kind of the key takeaway, at least for the United States, is that we have to operate across all three of these strategic environments simultaneously. So we have to be managing them. Not all states are nuclear-capable states, so therefore they don't have to think about how to create security with the possession of nuclear weapons. Um, and so one way to kind of capture it is that, as Michael said, in terms of the nuclear strategic environment, security was about the absence of war. Okay? That was, that's how you increase advantage and protect and preserve you know, your interests and values. In the conventional strategic environment, it's about being able to fight and win and prevail in war. I mean, that is what how you would define security in this realm of brute force. Um, in the cyber strategic environment, it's really about an alternative to war. It's about states being able to operate in and through cyberspace, exploiting others' vulnerabilities um, for strategic advantage and strategic gain without the risk of war. So it's kind of winning without fighting. So we, as policymakers and strategists, have to think about how we manage across all three of those and that we make sure we have the appropriate strategy aligned to the strategic environment.
1: Uh, in your book, uh, you discuss uh, this idea of uh, kind of a c- cyber fait accompli. Uh, can you explain and provide uh, some examples uh, behind this idea of persistent competition?
3: Yeah, yeah happy to do so. so so the environment that we just described to you um, obviously impacts state behavior. And we say that the, uh, the dominant behavior is exploitation in cyberspace. Not the only behavior. There is a little bit of coercion off to the side, right? especially between states at war. You, you see states trying to use cyber for coercive purposes. But exploitation is the dominant behavior. This manifests in two ways, primarily as a cyber fait accompli, and secondarily as what we call direct cyber engagement. A cyber fait accompli is a unilateral, independent action on behalf of an actor uh, that realizes limited gain for the reason that the opponent or the target either is unaware that you've made the gain, is unwilling to contest the gain, or is unable to contest the gain. This is what you see every day in the paper, right? I'll, I'll go back in time. OPM. Right? How, how long did it take the United States to find out about the breach in OPM? <laughs> Months, right? So we were unaware. So the Chinese were able to get away with it because we were unaware. Um, solar winds, unaware, right? So the Russians were able to get everything that they want. And so most of this happens because of a lack of awareness. But there are some where, certainly, if you think about the, the, um, the companies in the DIB, where they get their intellectual property stolen, Sometimes they're unwilling to do something about it, right? Certainly, some of them a a year or two ago were unwilling to make it publicly known because they were afraid about their bottom line, right? The SEC would find if they had to report to the SEC, it would be out in the public, their stock would tank, right? So they had incentives, financial incentives, for not responding and for, in fact, not even making people aware that they were uh, intruded upon by an adversary. So those are examples of FIA complete. Direct cyber engagement is a little bit different. It's, it's more like hand-to-hand comment. Right? We say that it's very scarce in cyberspace. Primarily because there are so many opportunities for states to do cyber fait accompli, because there's so many vulnerabilities in cyberspace. Right? Why contest, why get involved in hand-to-hand combat to achieve a gain when I can achieve it by not even gauging uh, the target or, or an opponent? But Rick Ledgett, when he was deputy director of, of NSA, uses the example of when the Russians got into the, the, the State Department and White House systems in 2014. And there were NSA teams down there, and FBI teams down there, that, and he described as hand-to-hand combat in the systems. Right, right. We found them. They knew that we found them. We were trying to kick them out. They figured out the tools that we were that we were using to identify where they were. They corrupted those tools so they could get back in. Right, this is hand-to-hand combat, and again, that's direct cyber engagement. But very scarce compared to cyber fait accompli. But those are the two behaviors that we that we describe states engage in in cyberspace.
2: And if you if you think about it, the way Michael described the cyber fait accompli, it's not about coercion. It's not that states are doing it um, in trying to get some um, sort of concession from us. They're simply doing it because if they over time, they can accumulate strategic gains. I mm-hmm. mean, that's one of the key issues: is that we often talk about incidents or intrusions or hacks when we, in fact, discover these things, um, and none of them are strategically significant in of their own right themselves to rise to a level that would lead to maybe a use of force or some sort of um, you know major policy initiative. But nonetheless, they're sort of below the radar screen, and over time, they cumulatively lend to strategic advantage on the part of our adversaries at our expense. Um, you said that you had um, Admiral Rogers here um, one time speaking about this, and he reflected on the Sony um, hack yeah. and, and really felt that, um, and perhaps you know, he really felt that that was going to um, be something significant because you here had the power of a nation state directed at a, at a company, um, and the decision was to treat that as a, a criminal act. Right. Um, So, you know, we as an international community and also we within the United States haven't really done the hard work of figuring out what we consider to be that sort of um, armed attack equivalent. Um, But as a result, you have this Persistent activity that continues deliberately calibrated to remain below that level because it can accrue strategic gains without the risks of war.
1: Right. I remember Admiral Rogers essentially equating: you know, what's the difference between a missile taking out Sony servers and what happened to them, you know, via the North Koreans? Uh, via cyber so you know it does uh, a lot of those red lines have been kind of very vague if they exist um, yeah, if they <laughs> do exist uh, and i and speaking you know from my time at odni uh, when solar winds was identified and uh, and lord knows I, I imagine in the months and years that will take to figure out you know everything from that we have a large problem in our federal government right now from different capabilities uh just throughout of understanding whose systems are doing what and who's talking to who? Because we actually had different, you know, sub-cabinet agencies not being able to communicate and understand what was going on with their, with their main cabinet agencies. Yeah. Um, where have the uh, pre-existing theories, you know, of past gone wrong um, from what is actually happening, what you're seeing?
2: Right. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll start with that, and Michael will um, chime in. I, I, I don't think it's right to say that they've been wrong. I think if the question is, have they been applied appropriately? Okay, and so there's been a lot of debate about um, is there deterrence in cyberspace in terms of whether cyber capabilities independently can deter, and whether it's possible to deter malicious cyber behavior. And what we argue is that at that armed attack equivalent level, sort of that level of a significant incident, deterrence, in fact, is working. I mean, we haven't really seen a major attack of that magnitude, and we would argue that's because. Adversaries recognize that that would be a significantly consequential event, le- leading to, um, you know, uh, de- uh, destruction, um, potentially death. Right. Um, the, the, the challenge is below that threshold, which is in this competition space, which is where the majority of cyber behavior has occurred. If you really look um, at, at it numerically, um, deterrence has not proven to be effective um and you know the key reason why in addition to what michael said about this not being a coercive space is that Um, as I said any independent incident is never going to rise to the level of that significantly consequential effect and so over and over again we've had debates within our government about what the response is going to be Um, and what we've seen is in fact that um, often there is no response right or a very delayed response Um, and so um, what that means is that adversaries have been able to really um, take advantage of us to a a great extent by operating um, in and through cyberspace and so that's why why we, we talk about this theory of initiative persistence, which is one that understands the underlying technology, how it incentivizes states to act, and how we have to contest and press back on that. And the biggest um, challenge that we've seen is that there's been such a tremendous comfort with the theory of deterrence, because it's been successful in, in the nuclear realm for so many years, But the first question people ask and the first question our overseers ask is, you know, how do you deter in cyberspace? And the question should be, how do you secure in cyberspace? Deterrence may be a strategy that's appropriate under some conditions, but the default question has been to sort of answer the strategic question um, without really asking it. Yeah, um, yeah. So
3: yeah, that, yeah, That's that's a, a huge uh, important point. To, I'm going to remake it right. That. That we, we need to be concerned about security in cyberspace, not about deterrence in cyberspace. Right? Deterrence is just one of many potential strategies for realizing security. So I, I would agree with Emily. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't call any any strategy or strategist, um, you know, for for I wouldn't call them out as being wrong. Uh, I would say it's simply a, a misalignment in, back to strategic environments. It's a misalignment of of strategies to strategic environments that they don't belong in. So you know, deterrence, which is the strategy affiliated with the nuclear strategic environment, to put that in the cyber strategic environment, which is very different, as I described, you shouldn't expect it to work, right? Uh, but again, I I wouldn't feel I'm not I'm not going to say that anybody has done anything wrong, Emily pointed out that deterrence has been our central strategy for the last 70 years. I mean, everybody in this room has biases, right? And if we'd been doing the same thing for 70 years <laughs> and somebody came in the room and said, sorry, that doesn't work, um, that doesn't apply here, um, I, I think that we would all struggle to, to change course as, as well. So, so we've had to put up with a, a lot of just our own biases as human beings yeah. uh, in, this, in this space as well. Um, my
1: colleague uh, here at Heritage, uh, Michael Ellis, uh, and I wrote a piece last year advocating uh, that the best defense is a good offense uh, as it relates to cybersecurity. And uh, while deterrence you maintain uh, is difficult or nonexistent in cyberspace, uh, can you detail what effect a, a good offense can have going forward under your theory?
2: So I know Michael wants to go first. We both have thoughts on this, but I will let him have his.
3: Oh no! no, no go uh, ahead. So, so at the at the risk of at the risk of countering the, the remarks of of my gracious host, um, <laughs> you know defense, uh, you know uh, uh, is a good offense or offense is a good defense. I mean, the terms offense and defense, in our view, are not useful terms in cyberspace. Yeah. Um, it's an initiative persistent environment, right? What matters is who has the initiative, um, offense and defense advantage is good when you're talking about the conventional strategic environment, um, and, uh, but even then it's, as you know, it's highly, it's highly criticized even trying to use it there. It's not very useful, um, in, in, this environment. So as long as, as long as you're persistent and you, and you maintain the initiative, right? So that you're always one step ahead. Yeah always. That's that's why we talk about persistent engagement and initiative persistence. Offense or defense, maybe at the tactical level, they're useful terms in in, in cyberspace, but our theory is a a strategic theory, right? So, and we just don't think those words are good at the strategic level or helpful at the strategic level in cyberspace.
2: Yeah, and and I I think that, as Michael said, at the tactical level, but if we think about our most effective, what we've done that's most effective, but our adversaries are really campaigns. Okay, and so they're ongoing strategic campaigns over time. And the issue is whether or not you're anticipating or your adversary setting the conditions in which you have to react. And an example of sort of how the offense-defense sometimes um, confuses um, debate is that when um, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense, um, advocated its strategy in 2018 to defend forward, you had people saying, "Well, well, you know, that's offensive," and then others saying, "That's defensive." And it really was about it, it was really about defending, pr- being proactive. Right, as opposed to being reactive. And sometime at the tactical level, there may be something offensive, but there were huge defensive components to it as well. And so we just think that it, 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 it helps, doesn't help as much um, to, to truly understand what's going on in cyberspace.
3: Yeah, if, Dustin, if, if I may, I, it, it, this is really important also from a, from a strategic communication perspective, right? When our allies here, more senior leaders in our government say, say that we're now going to do offensive operations, right? That we're going to take the gloves off. That's not the right messaging, right? That's not what we're doing. That, that does not accurately describe what we're doing. We are being proactive. We are being initiative persistent. And so it's no surprise that some of our opponents and even some of our allies, when they first heard of 2018 strategy, you know, we're, were taken aback and, and saying, boy, that's just really aggressive. And our view is no, it's not aggressive. It's assertive because the environment requires you to be assertive, again, maintaining, seizing and maintaining that initiative, but it's not aggressive.
1: Yeah, and and so uh, speaking to that, you know, we've seen this evolve here in the last few years, especially in the post-2016 landscape, you know, Mm -hmm. especially when it came to kind of this persistent idea of persistent engagement or defending forward as it related to especially the 2018 uh, midterms Mm -hmm. and the 2020 election cycle. Uh, So can you kind of discuss your how this persistent engagement theory Um, you see this becoming more commonplace entirely going forward. Um, you know, I think more commonplace right now, like, so we see it through this lens of this election cycle. But like you said, this is like a, you know, all, you know, 24-7, 365 type of operation. So is, is that kind of your thought process and your theory?
2: yeah so um I, I draw first, I draw a distinction between the book, which focuses on a the theory cyber persistent theory, persistence theory, and then what the u s Department of Defense has operationalized it in terms of persistent engagement, which is an operational approach for employing uh, military cyber forces um, and um the the interesting thing about this was this wasn't a th- theory or a strategy that was sort of developed in a vacuum, but you actually had operational people saying, what we're doing is not working, we can see what's going on in cyberspace, but they didn't really have a language or a logic to understand it. And so at the same time, both Richard and Michael um, were with me at U.S. Cyber Command and began having conversations, um, and, and between the kind of theoretical conversation with the operational, um, it really gave form and a logic to what the operation Operational environment had been had been telling us, um, and um, we initiated talking about defend forward. Um, really, a, a very specific reason for the U.S. Department of Defense, and that was to get the military to be able to operate off the DOD and off the DOD information network outside of an area of hostility, okay, Um, which it had not been able to do except under a few different circumstances. So this was the element of sort of getting DOD in the game to be able to be more proactive because what they bring to the table is the ability to scale. Um, and so, it, what happened was, you know, that was released um, in 2017, and then in 2018, um, DOD got a, a, um, more authorities to be able to operate more proactively and um, more at a continuous pace. And so, I think what you've seen is. Um, You know, I think it's interesting to look at the the 2018, 2020, and 2022 elections, um, because that's really an area where we see a whole-of-government consensus on the fact that defending our elections from foreign meddling is is critically important. Um, And we do see whole-of-government campaigning right? Mm -hmm. To be able to set the conditions for safe and secure elections, right? And what that means in terms of understanding what's going on out inside, you know, the adversary space outside of our own networks, and then working with um, private industry and other government agencies um, that have different authorities to be able to, um, you know, work together to, to secure those election networks internally. So, yeah, I think this is a case where we do see that continuous campaigning over time, based on the theory, what that would suggest is that we need to be doing this, um, you know, much more uh, proactively and continuously across a range of different um, threat actors, and in some cases against violent um, or malicious cyber actors, we do do that. But I'm sure, as, as Michael will point out, this really is a whole of government or a whole of nation plus approach. We've seen it operationalized in DOD, and the question is, how do we get this to be executed and operationalized throughout the whole? of nation.
3: Yeah, th- th- that's absolutely key, um, Emily, thank you. The, this can't just be the Department of Defense doing this, right, be- because, you know,
4: our,
3: our strategy of deterrence, talk about conventional forces, it's not only the Department of Defense that does that. They're supported by the Department of State. They're, they're supported by others. So we can't only have DOD doing initiative persistent uh, strategies to to help secure the United States uh, national interest in and through cyberspace. So, so we've been pleased to see. Uh, activity in other government agencies right so so CISA's recent strategy that came out about a month ago very proactive right very proactive uh, much more so than the one previous to that we see what the FBI is doing and and, and how they're applying rule 41 to actually be proactive yeah. in taking malware off of people's systems um, and they're doing it in a legal way, right? They're 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 going through the courts to get the the court order to do it, but they're taking that malware off of systems before adversaries have a chance to leverage it, right? So proactive. So we're starting to see it in DOJ. We're seeing it in DHS. we 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 have a hopefully an anchor in, in DOD, but it has to continue to spread, right? And our it has to go beyond the United States, right? It's whole nation plus our allies, preferably have to also adopt this notion that this is an initiative persistent environment and some of them have. The UK I think is pretty much on board with um, the theory and and they they still use the word deterrence but you know that's, it's hard to get rid of the word sometimes. Um, I think some of our allies, other allies and partners are understanding the environment is the way that we describe it in the book and therefore the, the strategic prescriptions are appropriate. That we have in the book, but yeah, it's it's a it's going to take a it's going to take a while.
1: Yeah, and I've I, you know speaking to the uh, the FBI's role here, you know it's kind of you know everybody thinks of U.S. Cyber Command, and of course you know um, protecting networks, you know coming into the United States. Um, but I have found it really interesting, the authorities that the FBI has, has used, and I think they're even kind of learning uh, even further how to use these authorities to protect critical infrastructure in the U.S., and the the takedown of the hafnium web shells and this, uh, the Russian uh, botnet situation back earlier this year, I think are really interesting areas to keep on exploring the ability for us to protect those kind of soft underbelly mm-hmm. internal networks that we, we struggle to uh, where our adversaries really take advantage of. Uh, I wanted to kind of switch gears, uh, you know, international norms. I know there's some some writing in your book about this. And I, I don't color me skeptical, but I've been a little more skeptical of this. But I'd love to c- hear your thoughts on this because there's been a steady drumbeat of uh, discussions that the U.S. Uh, must lead in helping establish kind of international norms, you know, rules of the road uh, as it relates to cyberspace. Uh, can you discuss your thoughts on this matter? And is it even possible with adversaries, uh, especially cyber adversaries such as China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Looking to exploit, you know, these rules of the road, or just not even pay attention to them.
3: Yeah. So obviously, you know, they're they're not rules of the road if, if Russia and China aren't abiding by them, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so it, it, it or even to call them norms if if the most some of the most significant cyber actors aren't abiding by them, it it really doesn't make sense to call them norms, right? But the so I think what the United States and and its allies and partners are doing in the United Nations. In terms of trying to get states to commit to interpretations of international law as it applies in the cyber context, is very helpful. It is a long game, right? Because it's going to take states a long time. The United States is actually lagging in contributing to the appendix that the the GGE recently asked for in terms of, you know, tell us how you think sovereignty applies in cyberspace, tell us how you think the rule of non-intervention applies in cyberspace. Other countries are are way ahead of us in that regard, the the UK's Attorney General uh, furthest ahead of all of us. Uh, I think that's a very fruitful um, space for the Department of State to play. And the DOJ has to play there because, you know, the the Office of Legal Counsel is the authoritative voice on that in in the United States, just as it is the the AG in, in the UK. But this other effort that we're doing—it's okay. That I, I will call it you skeptical because I am too, right? Because if you look at the, the eleven norms um, that have been approved in the GGE, uh, I mean, a couple of them um, aren't. A couple of them actually speak to international law. One talks about non-intervention, so that's already that's already law. One talks about another aspect of it. You know, that's already law. So we're down to nine. Right, and there are a couple of them don't attack critical infrastructure. Well, nobody's attacking critical infrastructure, right? So it doesn't resonate with states. If you look at other efforts by other folks, like the Global Commission on Cyber Stability, um, they have norms that are much more salient to states, like election interference. Can't interfere in other states' elections. You can't distribute malware, right? So norms in those reports, I think, are much more. Um, useful to pursue because states have all felt the pain of that, Uh, it resonates with them, and that is something that most states actually agree on, right, rather than rather than even some of the bad actors uh, would agree on. So I think we need to focus on the long game. Um, If we want to do norms, uh, initiative persistent behavior, Tacit understandings right so through behavior not necessarily through explicit exchanges but through tacit behavior we can communicate what our preferences are what are unacceptable what is what what is acceptable what we think is responsible what is not responsible um, so I, I think we need to you know change course a little bit
2: and and I just would um, add to that by saying that I sympathize with your view as well I think of norms as normal practice, right? What has been routinized? And if you look at the malicious behavior that's ongoing, that has become normalized. And I think part of that was the US not pushing back on that early enough. Um, And so that's different than the aspirational norms of what we would like to see. And if we look historically at other areas like the law of the sea, for example, how norms evolved over time, they were constructed from the bottom up. Okay, it was about navies interacting and figuring out, you know, what made sense consensually to agree upon in terms of that behavior. And so I think it has to be both Bottom up um, and top down, and you know the United States was quite successful after World War II in establishing the rules of the road. But we were overwhelmingly powerful. Right, and so we could, you know, we owned um, the ability to reward those states that played along and to exclude those states that did not. We're not in that position today. So once again, we have to look at our framework and, and understand where we are and what's the, you know, more productive way of getting to, um, you know, shared expectations about what's appropriate and what's not.
3: Great.
1: Um, can we briefly uh, uh, discuss your thought? thoughts on the ongoing war uh, in Ukraine and has it, you know, changed or reinforced your views? You know, one of the things I, I keep thinking about always is, uh, you know, the colonial pipeline hack, you know, for example, uh, and just resiliency of, you know, there was more of a consumer panic and fear, um, you know, related to the, the pipeline and the gas shortages. And also vice versa what's happening in ukraine is like you know there's been this misnomer that they're not getting hit by these kind of you know diehard type of cyber attacks that people kind of envision Um, but there is a persistent engagement by the russians each and every day so has u.s cyber command and our allies and nato um what have we learned from this and and the resiliency too of the ukrainians to be able to counter this along with private sector actors i mean has it how does it apply to your to your theory
2: so i think the the first thing to to be you know, to point out is our book is looking primarily at competition, okay? So competition and crisis and conflict are distinct geopolitical conditions, all right, with, you know, different incentives, different pressures on actors. Um, And so, um, you know, you know, we as a, as a, as a scholarly community and a policy community, have to realize that we have a lot more experience in the competition space than in crisis and conflict. And I think people are, now I've been listening to a lot of talks recently and I'm heartened by the fact that people are saying we can't jump to conclusions about crisis and conflict and about the role of cyberspace because we're not even... Through this conflict yet, right, and people are already drawing conclusions, so you know with, with, with that caveat in mind, um, uh, I think that um, I mean uh, Michael and I' will probably point out different insights, but from my vantage point, one of the things that we've, that we see is that how you um, operate in competition and persistently engaging in what the current administration might call campaigning is critical for posturing for success in crisis and conflict, okay? So for example, we know the importance of sharing intelligence in crisis and conflict, and we know the importance of uh, secure networks for doing those. Those have to be in place early on, proactively, right? We can't sort of pull that together on the fly. Um, and so we're also thinking, exploring um, and understanding about how in competition you can set conditions for success in crisis and conflict. How do you understand what your adversary's um, desired crisis and war conditions are? For example, um, the ability to execute a fait complete conventionally. And how do you take away those conditions beforehand. Um, And cyber can play an important role in that. So I think that's one really important um, aspect to understand the relationship between campaigning and competition, between persistence day to day, and how that postures you for crisis and conflict. Because once you get into crisis in cyber, it's come as you are, right? You have what you have. Um, I'm sure Michael has some other reflections on Um, that. Just
3: one, Emily. I I think that was excellent. so you know we're doing we're doing some new writing on this. Actually, this, this what we call conditions based analysis because we want to talk more about militarized crisis. We want to talk more about armed conflict and when when and how and and when not and how not to use cyber in in both of those uh, other geopolitical conditions. One of the things that we talked about early on and in, in, uh, after February 24 was that all the folks that were talking about prognosticating on on how cyber would be used. We saw nobody thinking about uh, Putin's strategy. What, what were his political aims? what was his military doctrine? Um, where in the phases of the execution of, of the conflict might cyber be more relevant and might not? So there was none of that kind of discussion that that's one of our big takeaways. You need that framework right you, you need to think about what the, what are they trying to achieve what's the doctrine that they have to achieve it? Where does cyber fit in that doctrine? What kind of conflict is it going to be? Is it going to be coin? Is it going to be um, conventional? If it's conventional, is it going to be a blitzkrieg, or is it going to be attrition? All these different things present different value to cyber at different times. Right? So if you, if you don't know th- those in advance, you're, you're really kind of throwing up your hands, and you're going to be surprised, like a lot of people were, because right? they didn't think about what are those things uh, in Putin's mind and therefore how will he use cyber and when will he use it? So uh, that's, that's my big takeaway. Great. Uh, I have a couple
1: more quick questions uh, and i want to make sure I leave a little time for our audience. Um, uh, the Biden administration is currently ironing out the next uh, round of the U S cyber strategy. Uh, Michael, what would you like to see flushed out in this next iteration? Um, you know, the previous uh, iteration was, uh, uh, uh Trump's, uh, 2018 cyber strategy.
3: Yeah. Um, so you know, our our core strategic principle from the theory is initiative persistence, and I, I want to see that throughout the whole document. Right? I I, I, <laughs> w- I want to see guidance. From, I, I want to see guidance from POTUS to every other agency uh, that says, show me how you're going to operationalize initiative persistence. Right? We know how DOJ is doing it through FBI. We know we know how how DHS is doing it through CISA. What about state? You know, what, what about other agencies? Because that's the game for us, right? In our mind, it's, it's an initiative persistent uh, strategy. So I, w- I would like to see a call for that. Let's see how we can actually do it whole of government.
2: And, just, uh, and I'll just add, I think just the, the juxtaposition is we have to get out of this re- react after the fact. I mean, that's really yeah. been that, you know, how do we react? If you look at the language, language is so important. How do we react? How do we respond? All of that means that you have agreed to absorb the attack. Right. And any of us knows who's experienced one of those, it can be very inexpensive um, in terms of time and treasure to execute something, not everything, but, you know, criminal actors can do that, and immensely expensive to deal with it after the fact. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's important to not always think about resp- react and respond, because that affects your orientation toward the space.
1: Great. Um, Last last, uh, subject I wanted to touch on, Uh, one thing, you know, when I was uh, at ODNI and and everybody um, was really always impressed by our uh, ability to work with allies and partners. Uh, And so I wanted to kind of discuss, you know, there's been extensive work uh, over the last five years, I think, uh, to better coordinate and share uh, cyber intelligence with partners, both in the private sector and, and states. Um, And with the recent, you know, future expansion possibly of of Sweden and Finland to to NATO, uh, and you also see a lot more cooperation happening with the Quad or the Quad Plus partners, um, what do you see this as a value-add for the U.S., and how do you think that better incorporates, what do we need to be doing in that space to kind of better uh, our position against the the Chinas of the world, as, you know, kind of the cyber-dominant adversary?
2: Yeah. So I would, um, you know, if you look at the recently released national security strategy, it puts a um, a lot of emphasis on working with partners, um, coalition partners, allies, um, and secure networks for information sharing, for intel sharing, for rapid um, is critical. Mm-hmm. It is critical. Um, one of the things that um, U.S. Cyber Command has done is in done is hunt forward operations. And hunt forward operations are um, uh, defensive operations. They are at the request of the um, host state. And they essentially want assistance to come in and help identify where adversaries have penetrated their networks. Um, And and, um, we've talked about this publicly. We did it in Ukraine. Um, And what that shows is the ability to do that actually before the Russian invasion, to do that Proactively ahead of time is really, really important, and so I think that's really one of the key takeaways. Um, and uh, you know, the the we often are when we talk about um, cyber, we're often focused on the I'm going to use the word Michael okay. offensive, right? Um, but the mission assurance piece is foundational, right? I mean, that is just core and that's critically being able to have those networks and making sure your forces can in fact operate and leveraging unique intelligence insights. So I think that's probably one of our biggest um, insights from the ongoing um, conflict.
3: Yeah, I I don't have much to add to that. I I think that this is one area where I I think we're actually doing pretty well. I mean, we've reached out across multiple agencies With um, allies and partners, and I mean, let's just let's keep that going.
1: Well, I want to open it up uh, to our audience. Uh, We have time just
4: for a few questions here. Um, Let's see, gentleman here. Uh, Yeah, I have um, followed this field uh, as closely as I can since I directed internet policy for IBM in the 1990s and. The greatest surprise to me, and perhaps you can explain it or make your own prediction, is that um, we have not seen more of a breakup of the global internet than has actually happened. If you were the emperor of a country, oh say like North Korea, what you might do is say, we have no global interconnection. The only global interconnection we have is with our offensive forces and anybody who connects their tcpip routers to the global internet will suffer death and their family can spend the rest of their lives in a in a prison and and it seems to me if you do something like that you have an iron dome you you can be you could look at the global internet as an offensive medium but not have to worry about defense it's the air gap uh, which our own military uses often enough anyway but what's surprising is that more countries don't do it. And I used to think, well, of course they can't do it because they lose access to Amazon and they yeah. lose access to Facebook and they lose access to, to Twitter. Well, if you were a dictator, uh, compare losing access to Amazon with the gallows next to Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi. It's a no-brainer. So why hasn't this thing broken up more And purely from a military point of view, uh, uh, sure, I'm going to interconnect for offensive military purposes. Everything else, we use our own non-IP domestic data network and anybody who interconnects. And, of course, some people can have Starlink terminals and Iridium terminals and things like that. But, I mean, at the network level. So why – this is not what I expected to happen after – the cyber became a dominant military theme. So your explanation and prediction would be helpful. Thank you.
0: Thank
3: you. You can go first.
2: Oh, well, I don't want
3: to go first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a fascinating question. Uh, Chris Demchak has written a lot about this, and she, she refers to it as the <laughs> balkanization of the internet, right? Why haven't we seen it? And I think her forecast is that we are going to see it. Uh, so if you haven't read any of Chris's stuff, I, I would I would point you in her direction. Uh, you know. I, what came what did come to mind when when you were offering um, th- that perspective and those insights was that you know North Korea has cyber operators all over the globe right they 're not just in North Korea, so even if North Korea you know had its own little intranet if you will that doesn 't mean that they still couldn 't benefit from everybody else's intranets because they could they could move to brazil they I, I have operators in brazil and in russia and you know, even in Iran um, and China, so, so I I, I don't know that um, I don't know that it would make that much of a difference. Um, that's that's just thinking while I'm sitting on stage, <laughs> ruminating on on your interesting points. But um, I'll just offer that.
2: I mean, I think the, the the closest you would see to something like that is what China is is trying to do, right? And so, I mean, it takes a lot of capability to do that. I think some people. Um, you know predict that they are moving in that direction but it goes out it's not just about the technology it's really about I think a, um, a fundamentally different vision of what it means to be sovereign in cyberspace and what the what, what are the values that undergird that and we have you know very fundamentally different views about freedom of information in terms of content and about the idea that that China has cyber sovereignty if they want to control that content so I, I see that driving it more sort of that challenge, you know, the, the question of are we going to be in a world of information dissemination or a world of information control? And that w- will really shape, um, you know, the, the protocols going forward um, and the decisions that are made in international organizations. So.
1: It was interesting too on the uh, like the Chinese example. You know, for the lore of their firewall, there was a recent case where uh, there was uh, potential corruption in Africa with related to like how many IP addresses have been purchased by this Chinese businessman, and it was roughly I think it was like thirty or forty percent of some country's IP addresses, and they're like, oh, this is for some kind of corrupt activity, but all it really was 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 it was for he wanted to be able to access it for Chinese VPN users that wanted to access gambling websites. So you know it. As much as it sounds in theory, like it's possible, the populations have a very interesting way to try to work around it, and Mm -hmm. business does too. Yes. Yes.
0: Hi, I'm um, Dan McBride. I'm uh, Canada's Head of Delegation to the UN Cyber Open-Ended Working Group, which, as you know, is where the norms and law piece gets discussed these days. Um, on law, I uh, fully agree with you. That's a really important piece of it. Canada just put out our own statement on how we see law applying. Um, I think others need to keep doing that. Um, on norms, I, I'm not sure I share your skepticism just because, sure, they're not perfect, but nothing coming out of the UN is. But it's what we have. <laughs> um, and I guess my question to you is on that. You seem to be open to new norms, and you know there's a proliferation of norms being done elsewhere at the GCSC and so on. But at the UN, our view tends to be that, um, you know, if we open up the Pandora's box of new norms, then the Russians, Chinese want more too, and that it might actually be better to focus on the ones we have and implementing them. And that goes to the other part of the discussion, which is, um, you know, the, the deterrence piece. And so if you have a speed limit, uh, you know, that's, that's not being followed, it, it's probably not the speed limit that's the problem, it's the lack of enforcement, right? But just on the new norms piece, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on whether um, adding new norms might also play into our adversaries' hands because they would have demands of their own. Thank you.
3: Uh, first of all, let, let me applaud Canada uh, on what they have written because Canada, for example, came out with a very, a, a very excellent statement on how they view cyber uh, and the concept of sovereignty. Uh, and so, and, and I mean, really put, you know, the, the rubber to the road by saying, for example, we think a cyber operation. Uh, whose effects can be uh, mitigated by rebooting a system is not a violation of a state sovereignty, right? I mean, that's really getting into the weeds. And, and I think that's the kind of discussion we have to have. So I, I really, Cannon did a, did a great job in that regard. So again, this, this notion of a proliferation of norms, right? So, so I mean, we, we have to be careful how we use this word norms. Norms can't proliferate if people aren't doing them. If they're not doing them, they're not norms, right? So, so wh- where I am on norms is, let's, let's pick the, the things that, that, that to me are salient to states and where states have an opportunity um, through state practice to actually um, cultivate those norms, right? Yeah, I mean, you can't just declare them and, and all of a sudden they are. You have to cultivate them. And, and the 11 that we've got um, through GGE, what's the plan for cultivating adherence? There's no plan for cultivating adherence. right? There's a plan for, for increasing the capacity of other states to, to, to you know, be able to handle cyber activity. Um, but how do we really cultivate adherence to those norms? So if you pick one, if you pick one of the, G, uh, the Global Commission norms, which is no malware. And if, if, if I'm running the US government, I say to CyberCom, wherever you see it and it's causing you trouble, take them down. Like Trickbot, for example. And then I, I wink and nod over at Microsoft and I say, by the way, because they're affecting your ability to sell your product, you take them down too, which they, Microsoft does, right? Uh, and so, so that's sending the message tacitly, because you're not talking about it, right? That malware is unacceptable. And take it down, and if other states do it, and the UK certainly has, in conjunction with the FBI, right, their their national um, criminal center, have taken down other Emotet and so on and so forth ransomware groups. That kind of behavior is actually cultivating the norm, right, rather than talking about it. I'm not saying talking about it isn't valuable, right. It's certainly when you're trying to cultivate it through operational activity, you're going to hit areas where two sides are going to bump up against one another. That to me is when the discussion is really valuable, right? Just like it was for the law of the sea, Uh, that that you know the the U.S. and Soviet navies, when it got hot on the high seas, that's when the ambassadors reached out to one another and said, you know, we got to talk this out. Right? Everything else they figured out by themselves. But when it got into dangerous space, then then the explicit bargaining rather than the tacit bargaining came, came into play. So. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Those are my thoughts on it. You know, I'm not totally, I mean, there's a place for it, but we have to recognize what they are and what they aren't and, what, and, and the different inroads of getting there that are facilitated by the nature of cyberspace itself.
2: And I just would add, I think we need to have a way to empirically assess whether or not the norms are emerging right? So one could look at, for example, cases of um, um, election um, security, for example, not just within the U.S., but other states, and look over time if, if we're pushing back and being proactive about it, right, taking away opportunities and capabilities for adversaries to engage in that. And then over time, if we see less of an interest in doing it, that might be a, a you know, a, um, an indicator that there is, you know, recognition. this just the, the game isn't worth the candle, right? We'd rather put our efforts someplace else. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's sort of the bottom up and the top down. But we need to do the work of assessing it versus, I agree with Michael, just calling anything a norm that you want to see, right?
1: Great. Um, I think we're out of time, but I want to give you all, uh, the floor for any kind of, uh, closing thoughts,
3: anything you, else you no, want no, to add? No, just, uh, just again a final thank you. Um, thank you to everybody for their excellent questions and, and Dustin for, um, for being a terrific moderator. appreciated your questions as well. It gave us an opportunity to talk about lots of different aspects of the book.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I- Agree with Michael. This is terrific. Thank you so much.
1: Well, it's an excellent book. Uh, everybody go out and get it because it's a, it really is a great read. Uh, really at kind of the forefront of a, a very complicated uh, but interesting debate that you know is going to drive a lot of, of, of you know military thought, but also you know, civilian infrastructure. Uh, you name it. Um, you know a lot of different changes happening in our in our government right now related to mm-hmm. cyber. Uh, it's something we need to pl- pay very close attention to. Uh, so I want to thank our audience, uh, and our online audience for joining us today. Um, this will be, uh, you know, p- please keep the conversation going online. This should be posted, I think, sometime tomorrow or so. So, um, I want uh, everybody to please, uh, thank my, uh, my guest.